Let's Be Frank is a podcast centered on interpreting the life of Benjamin Franklin and the times that shaped his thoughts and soul. Some content may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Greetings and salutations, dear listener. Welcome to another installment of Let's Be Frank, an auditory almanac for the curious mind, with me, your faithful friend and host, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. Well, my intellectual junto, I think congratulations are in order. Please join me in celebrating Miss Samantha Brahman of Richlands, North Carolina, for being the first amongst our junto to win our first listener giveaway. Miss Brahman is now the proud owner of the 1733 Poor Richard's Almanac, written by yours truly. Congratulations, Miss Brahman. Oh, and dear listener, fret not. I believe this will be the first of a great many giveaways we'll have together, so more opportunities will arise. For purposes of good order... This podcast is composed of several primary sources associated with Benjamin Franklin's life, knit together with original writing to collect it all into one narrative on a cohesive theme. Today's episode is about to change the way in which we've been operating to this point. We're going to do something a little different today, dear listener. We're about to embark upon an intellectual odyssey that will be done in four parts— scattered between the framework and foundation of the topics we usually explore in the confines of one episode of Let's Be Frank. This series I call Chasing Independence. We're going to explore the story of America's Declaration of Independence through some of the philosophy that inspired it. Consider it, dear listener, an ancestry of ideas, or a genealogy of treason. I quite like that. We're going to do it in four parts, because something as complex as the sentiments of an entire continent, a bold thesis on the rights of all humankind and the essence of government, deserves to have its time taken with it. And moreover, I'm an old man, and have to pace myself and take doses of revolution in moderation. Today marks the first of four philosophers we'll explore. But first, the setting. The year is 1776, and everywhere America is questioning what it will become. His Britannic Majesty, King George III, and his Parliament have openly declared all 13 colonies to be an open rebellion, out of his protection. Friends become enemies, brother's sword is poised to be sheathed in brother's breast, sons turn their backs upon their fathers, fathers forget forever the names of their sons. In Philadelphia, as both tensions and temperatures rise, the Second Continental Congress convenes and feebly struggles to arrive at a national consensus as to the course the thirteen colonies will take. John Adams, frustrated at the slow progress being made, will leave behind the following sentiment. In my many years, I have come to the conclusion that one useless man is a shame. Two is a law firm, and three or more is a Congress. 
with the threat of disunion spreading from domestic opponents and annihilation from foreign ones, tensions and the stakes have never been higher. Through the labor and deliberation of certain colonies, a resolution would come from the delegation of Virginia on June the 7th, 1776. The resolution, presented by one Mr. Richard Henry Lee of Virginia, read as follows. Resolved that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is, and ought to be, totally dissolved. We'll discuss in greater detail how that resolution came into being amongst the Provincial Assembly in Virginia in an upcoming installment, but for now all you need to know is that it was delivered in the room with all the reception of a charged cannon aimed in our direction, fuse burning swiftly towards ignition. A continental decision would need be made, and soon. Certain gentlemen, unwilling to confront the reality that a true separation from Great Britain was the only path to the restoration of safety and protection of American liberty, still held out hope for reconciliation. And so, upon the 11th of June, four days later, Lee's resolution was placed upon the table, the topic to be broached again at a later date. That being done, Congress adjourned itself for a recess of three weeks. The last act before that recess would lift the curtain on one of the most well-known scenes in the theater of American history. A committee of five would be established to pin a national sentiment declaring America's independence. The story, for now, dear listener, is to be continued. But it does well to set the stage nicely to begin our philosophical tromp through muck and mire of complex political theorem to put on our thinking boots and begin to make a smoother path for the mind to stroll through. The ties that bound us to Great Britain were broken, and a new contract of government would need be made. The committee that would write the declaration may have been five in number, but they had at their disposal five hundred years of wisdom by the grace of the printed word. The first great thinker who helped to shape the minds of political America wrote at length on the contractual relationship between a government and the governed. They wrote upon the nature of man, and mankind in nature, and what lengths one must go to when faced with chains or conflict. And many of their concepts I find to be novelty, frankly, and other works, when practically applied, yield better progress in government, but he's a fine place to start, and modern minds will benefit from the thoughts he left behind. So, dear listener... Let's begin and explore our first great thinker, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and the social contract. Born in Geneva, Switzerland in 1712, Rousseau rose above the instability and poverty he was born into, and despite a formal education, garnered the notice of the crown and nobility of France. 
but the power of his writing and the provoking nature of his philosophy. Rousseau's ideas were often controversial and placed him at odds with other writers in his time. He was critical of the political and social establishments, including the Catholic Church, the monarchy, and because of this would later find himself ostracized by the very people who raised him from obscurity to begin with. The works we'll be using to discuss Rousseau today come from a discourse on the origin and basis of inequality among men, 1755, and the social contract, 1762. Now, according to Rousseau, there is only one thing that is the source of the whole of mankind's misery, that has brought forth the greatest tragedy, the greatest sorrow, and the greatest hardship. That one thing is the existence of society itself. Now, Rousseau says, man is born free, and everywhere he is in chains. One thinks himself the master of others, and still remains a greater slave than they. How did this change come about? I do not know. What can make it legitimate? That question, I think, I can answer. The first man who, having enclosed a piece of ground, bethought himself of saying, This is mine and found people simple enough to believe him. That was the real founder of civil society. From how many crimes, wars, and murders, from how many horrors and misfortunes might not anyone have saved mankind by pulling up the stakes, filling in the ditch, and crying to his fellows, beware of listening to this impostor. You are undone if you once forget that the fruits of the earth belong to us all, and the earth itself to nobody. Rousseau, like Locke, and other philosophers before him, spoke at length upon the state of nature, which I will endeavor to sum up thusly. Now, dear listener, pause from whatever you're doing. Close your eyes. Now, as best as you are able, take away everything you have. Reduce yourself of everything that composes and constitutes the modern world around you. Take away the busy schedule. Take away the obligations fast approaching. Dissolve the law and regulation and break apart the norms and fashion that, according to Rousseau, enslave you more than chains ever could. See yourself as you were born to be in this moment, in nature, absent of government, absent of law, absent of family, sans everything. When we visit Locke in a later installment of Chasing Independence, we'll begin to discuss the natural liberty that comes from this natural state. But for now, simply remain in this state, with your eyes closed. There is no man, there is no woman, no rich, nor poor, no kings or paupers, for there are no definitions that place us in such distinctions. Keep your eyes closed, dear listener, and put yourself there for just a moment where the only thing in your possession is your breath. In nature, there is absolute freedom. Absent of lines of property, the world belongs to us all as much as it does any animal, and we are bestowed with the same absolute freedom every other animal under the kingdom of God possesses. We have absolute freedom, but no guarantee of safety. 
Oh, but what need have we of safety, says Rousseau. Tranquility is also found in dungeons, but is that enough to make them desirable places to live in? The Greeks, imprisoned in the cave of the Cyclops, lived very tranquilly while they were awaiting their turn to be devoured. In the absence of safety, man, from the origin of time, has consented to give up freedom, liberty, and even happiness derived from this state of nature, and has instituted a social contract between one and the other, giving up some of these freedoms to obtain just enough safety that is necessary for all to live peaceably. The framework of the social contract has been covered in the writing and words of great minds for over a thousand years, in the minds and pens of Plato, Justinian, Thomas Hobbes, and John Locke, but in Rousseau's incendiary hand, we find a call for the liberation of man that will be water for the parched who questioned, what is a good government? Rousseau continues, uh, what then is government? an intermediate body set up between the subjects and the sovereign, to secure their mutual correspondence, charged with the execution of the laws and the maintenance of liberty, both civil and political. According to Rousseau, man, in making this arrangement for themselves, have bestowed upon themselves the very tools to forge their own misery, in tasting the fruits from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we suddenly felt shame, and in doing so, cast ourselves forever from the Garden of Eden. Society has given us inequality, it has given us slavery, it has given us power, and it has given us poverty. What good does any of this do? When we fixate entirely at what another possesses that we cannot obtain, or covet some artificial aspect of society that we will further embroil and sacrifice our time, wealth, energy, our very lives for the attainment of things that only soothe our wounds, society put there in the first place. How far, says Rousseau, have we strayed from the great font of freedom and happiness that is natural order? The only solution for this, says Rousseau, is to throw off the bands that bind us and institute a new contract to better safeguard our happiness. Society is constituted by the will of the people, what Rousseau calls the general will of society, popular sovereignty, which we see echoed in the language of democracy from Athens to England to America and beyond. Walks populi, walks dei, the voice of the people is the voice of God. This general will is an essential aspect of the social contract, but it's not its salvation. The voice of a majority can speak just as hatefully as the mouth of one tyrant, and the very kings and quotas that have been the source of society's ills were put in place by the general will of society at one time or another. Tyranny can come at the hands of the many just as easily as the hand of one. The first and most important deduction from the principles we have so far laid down is that the general will alone can direct the state according to the object for which it was instituted, i.e., the common good. For if the clashing of a particular interest made the establishment of societies necessary, the agreement of these very interests made it possible. 
The common element in these different interests is what forms the social tie. And, were there no point of agreement between them all, no society could exist. It is solely on the basis of this common interest that every society should be governed. Now, the great question I have, dear listener, in reading this is, what is the common good? And is it not possible in society that one man's view of the common good may instead be the common ill for another? We begin to see the practicalities of Rousseau's arguments begin to lose their luster when we look at them too closely. Now, the sentiments of Rousseau's social contract that echo most profoundly in the American Declaration of Independence can be found in Book 3, Article 1, when Rousseau states, The state is always ready to sacrifice the government to the people, and never to sacrifice the people to the government. Reminds me, dear listener, of a very similar sentiment. To secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just power from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. I never had the honor of meeting Monsieur Rousseau, though I did correspond for a time with his cousin. I find some fault with the thinking of the man, but certainly not with the heart of his sentiments. I do not share the belief that society and the pursuit of knowledge should be the source of man's unhappiness. Rather, I think it proper to espouse that it was the very pursuit of happiness that first engaged us into entering into these contracts, one and the other, we rely upon one another, for we most assuredly cannot do it alone. I should think instead that it is ignorance that is the source of man's greatest misery, and in that the pursuit of knowledge should be the greatest balm and cure. Rousseau's writings would empower a people raised in subjection and hold up the notion that monarchs serve solely by the will of the subjects whom they preside over. Perhaps, dear listener, that is not so remarkable in your time, but rest assured, if that is indeed true, it is proof of just how far-reaching, how revolutionary these sentiments are. Rousseau would never live to see an America truly independent, nor would he go on to witness the revolution in France, but his ideas would go on to influence how we question the relationship between government and the governed 20 years from now, and indeed 200 years from now. And might we all be so lucky as that, to have our ideas outlive our bodies. Well there, dear listener, I hope this gives you a better understanding of the social contract, as well as a 15-minute philosophy lesson can give, use it to impress your friends, battle with relations at the dinner table, battle injustices in your community. Use it, my dear Junto, to build a better world for all to live in. I sit astonished, oftentimes, dear listener, at the remarkable fortune we find ourselves situated to be in possession of. This era of thought 
some will call the Age of Reason, others the Enlightenment. I don't necessarily believe man to be in possession of any more reason or enlightenment thinking than any other age of note. In any time, you'll find confederations of fools, and ignorance take root wherever there is shade to thrive. But what does make it unique is how accessible the tools of enlightenment became. The great works of mankind open for a people to arm and enlighten themselves with and the willingness of great minds to build upon greater ideas. In this nursery, the idea of America was born, certainly not to create a perfect society. I don't boast that such a thing was the product of 1776. There are too many contradictions, but instead to build a new contract where our power isn't vested in the hands of kings, but rather bestowed upon one and the other to be the better guardians of our own destiny. We'll continue the story of American independence in the next installment of Chasing Independence, and we'll continue to explore the philosophy that built our declaration. For now, we'll let the story rest. We have plenty more to explore in the meantime. Now, what lesson can we derive from examining the social contract of Jean-Jacques Rousseau? We form a society. These contracts, because the things we aim to accomplish, we cannot do alone. We all give up some for the betterment of all. It needn't only apply to matters of government. It can be placed upon our friendships, our work, our family, our faiths, ourselves. So... If the summation of the social contract is to give up some to better obtain a whole, how might this be applied to your life? What, dear listener, shall you give up to form a more perfect union for yourself? What might you do without in order to obtain a better life? We undertake together what we cannot do alone. Our consent to be governed, to yield our power to one another, is a gift we bestow upon a government, with the contractual understanding that they will protect and honor their portion of the agreement, protecting the rights of the governed. Your consent, my beloved friends, is a gift, and whenever the balance of safety or liberty is imperiled, that gift at any time may be withdrawn. I thank you for this social contract we've established together. I thank you for giving up your time and hope that in exchange you have obtained a, at least a small modicum of wisdom. That's all for today's installment. Would that we had more hours left in the day, but as always, we have nothing but time between us. And as we close, I hope I may again offer this solicitation. We here at Let's Be Frank are always looking for opportunities to travel, Franklin visited two continents and countless states in his lifetime, and here, in 2023, he wants to visit you. If you wish for a live presentation with the good doctor at your theater, school, or event, simply write to the email mentioned before. That's inquiries at bfranklinlive.com, and my associates will make good to set up an appointment post-haste. Resources and images from this week's episode can be found in the journal at www.bfranklinlive.com. 
If you like the show, subscribe and stay up to date with all the latest gossip and news, and do me the kindness of leaving a review. And spread the word. Tell your family, tell your neighbors, tell your horse, I don't care. Let's make our intellectual junto grow. That's all for now, dear listener. Fare thee well. And always remember, when you're good to others, you are best to yourself. Until we meet again, I remain your humble and obedient servant, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. Stay curious, my friends.